I do invite you to take your Bible, if you will, please, and open it to 2 Timothy. We are going to be looking actually at chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. But by way of context, we'll also read verses 15 through 18 of chapter 1. So we will read 115 through 2.13. Hear now the word of God. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesephorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. You then, my child... Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as I preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Jesus Christ with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Bow with me in prayer. We tonight, O God, gather as your people, looking to you once again for your work in our hearts by your word through the ministry of the illumining power of the Holy Spirit. Oh God, I pray that where our hearts might resist, where our minds might wander, that you would bring us in and do what you alone can do, that you would take your word and make it effectual for your people. We do pray in particular tonight for Juan Carlos and we thank you for him and his calling being brought from darkness to light and indeed as a servant of your church. And pray, oh God, that you would work not only in him, but through him, even as you have promised, our faithful God and Savior, in whose name we pray, amen. This last letter of the Apostle Paul is written to Timothy. 
Timothy his child in the faith, and Paul is mindful that Timothy and his ministry will face many challenges. Before we look at the particular challenge that is put forth in verses 15 through 18 of chapter 1, let us provide a broader context for just a minute. If you even look at Paul's letters, both, to Tim, both letters to Timothy, to Titus, he reminds us of all sorts of threats to gospel ministry. They are perhaps well summarized by the Apostle John. If you remember the Apostle John in his first epistle, an epistle that is robustly concerned with the truth and love of the gospel that you heard about this morning from Ephesians 1. And the Apostle John, as he writes this letter, he ends his letter with what might appear to be a blunt edge. He ends his letter with these words, little children, keep yourselves from idols. That's how he ends. John Calvin, as has often been articulated, describes the human heart as an idol factory. Paul describes the nature of life and ministry in terms of the invisible realm. We do not wage war against flesh and blood. Our battle is against the very spiritual forces of darkness. And the ministers of the church of Jesus Christ are not waging war with flesh and blood but with the spiritual forces of darkness. There are ministry threats of all shapes and sizes. Paul, later in this letter, will remind Timothy that people will begin to stockpile teachers for themselves who will scratch their itching ears, telling them what they want to hear rather than what they need to hear. We live in an age in which deconversion stories are all the rage. If you look in social media, you read in Christianity Astray, I'm sorry, Christianity Today, you will find story after story of people de-converting. Ministry is hard. Paul describes here, though, in this section of his letter a unique hardship It's one that we might describe as a personal betrayal. Those that had served with Paul, Paul describes in verse 15, Phygelus and Hermogenes among those from Asia, who Paul describes, all who are in Asia have turned against me. Sometimes ministry is very, very lonely. Particularly when those with whom you serve, they may turn their back on you, they may even shun you, not for theological reasons, sometimes just for personal reasons. It is likely that this was not a theological shunning of Paul because we see described in the next verses Onesiphorus who was not ashamed of Paul's chains. Can you imagine? Hey, Paul, what you doing in prison? I don't want to have anything to do with you if you're a kind of guy that for opening his mouth ends up in jail. Thanks, but no thanks. But then Onesiphorus comes forward, ministers to Paul in that context 
of loneliness. There's no pain like personal betrayal. Julius Caesar from Shakespeare has famously described it when he looked at his friend Brutus. Hey, too, Brute. Even you. There's a saying in Eastern Europe that is, I discovered in our time living there that was a common expression. Oh God, save me from my friends. You see, you know who your enemies are, but you've got to look out for those who might stab you in the back. How does one, in that sort of context of spiritual forces of darkness, of the prevalence of idolatry, of the wandering of the human heart, how does one stand up in ministry and carry on faithfully? One of the most enigmatic and fascinating characters of recent history, and when I say recent, I mean over the last several hundred years, is the 18th and 19th century philosopher, lawyer, the father of utilitarian ethics by the name of Jeremy Bentham. Bentham was a child prodigy. He was brilliant. He was reading by age three, had mastered Latin by age four, and he became a force in Great Britain with his philosophical pontifications. He actually led a group of a society of philosophers of whom a member, another member, his protege, was J.S. Mills. And in, at, the, at the time that Bentham was about to die, he actually urged his friends to do something quite extraordinary. He urged his friends to mummify his head after he died. Did you know that you can actually go to a museum in London today and see Jeremy Bentham's mummified head? Why did he want his head mummified? Well, not only was Bentham brilliant, he knew it. The irony there is that he was so brilliant that he foolishly believed that in the subsequent philosophical society meetings after his death, that he could bear an impact on the people in the room if they would prop up his mummified head. There are many stories about Bentham's head, among which is one that a group of co-eds actually stole his head one night and played soccer with it. I would suggest to you that that sort of thinking, however, is deserving of having our heads kicked around. Bentham believed that he could have influence because of the brilliance from within. What is striking about our text tonight as we look at verses 1 through 13 of chapter 2 is Paul does not tell Timothy to look within, but to look to Christ. And in the context of this personal suffering that Paul was facing, it is striking that he says to Timothy in verse 1 of chapter 2, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace of that is in Christ Jesus. Timothy, how will you not only survive in gospel ministry, let me tell you how you will thrive in gospel ministry. 
And it starts with you, Timothy. Look at it again at verse 1 and verse 2. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul, Paul says to Timothy, don't look to your own intellect. Don't look to your own skills. Don't look to your dashing good looks. Don't look to be a star. Don't seek to navigate the complexities of the human heart the tendency of the human heart to idolatry. Do not believe that you have the things within you to address that. You need Christ. Be strengthened in the grace that is found only in Christ Jesus. One of the great challenges of gospel ministry is remembering not only who we are, but whose we are that we belong to him and our value is found not in our own eloquence, not in our own gravitas, but it is found alone in Christ, Christ Jesus and his gospel. I just finished listening to the series of podcasts put on by the new journalism technique that many are using um, of a podcast journalism, long-form podcast journalism, and I've been traveling a bit lately, and I just listened to the, the whole series on the rise and fall of Mars Hill. Some of you may have heard or watched or, or heard that series concerning Mark Driscoll. And in that manifesto about what really took place in Seattle was a, was a really valuable look at the subtle and deceptive power of personal giftedness, of charisma, of the sense of importance. As one episode put it, it was early when Driscoll's fame was growing. And a group of the ministers were traveling to a conference where Driscoll was speaking and people were clamoring to get his signature. And one of his associates looked at him and said, Mark, what is going on here? And he responded, well, I'm a pretty big deal, you know. To such self-defeating, ministry-destroying self-absorption, Paul says, Timothy, you, my child, be strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. To express the nature of what it means to be strengthened in grace, Paul goes on and gives a series of, of metaphors, of descriptors, of what does it look like to be strengthened in this grace that is found in Jesus Christ so that I can carry on a ministry that bears fruit from generation to generation, as verse 2 is describing. The entrustment of that deposit that is given to Timothy, how is it going to bear fruit? He first is given an illustration in verses 3 and 4 of a soldier. Look at that text again. 
Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. This is a very common metaphor in scripture, a military metaphor where Jesus Christ is our commander in chief and it is our will to do his will. What does it mean to be strengthened in the grace that is found in Jesus Christ? It means to recognize that he is king and he is Lord. The end of Matthew's gospel, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, where Jesus is with his disciples and gives what we now describe as the Great Commission. All authority, Jesus says, has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth. Do you hear that? All authority. What did we learn this morning? What does all mean? Congregation, what does all mean? All. All. Very, very good. All authority is given to Christ Jesus, and therefore he ushers his people to the calling of the Great Commission of making disciples of all the nations. A good soldier is concerned with the will and purpose of the commander-in-chief. Ministry is Christ-absorbing and self-effacing. Verse 5, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Not only must Timothy fix his eyes on this pioneer and perfecter of his faith, not only must he fix his eyes on Christ Jesus, but he must also do what Jesus tells him to do, how Jesus tells him to do it. It's not only about the message of grace, but the method of its delivery, what we call in the Reformed tradition a reliance upon the means of grace that God has given his people. Play by the rules. Don't make up the rules as you go along. Don't believe that your success in ministry is going to be tied to your personal creativity. It is tied to your personal submission, to the grace of the gospel. You see, an athlete, yes, his goal is winning, but he only wins when he plays by the rules. Then in verse 6, Paul turns to yet another one. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. What I think is striking about this, this actually paves the way for what we're going to see in verses 10 through 13. But Paul uses the image of, a, of, of the farmer. The agrarian metaphors are also used very frequently in Scripture about a harvest that is to come. And when the farmer plants the seed and as he tills his ground, he relies upon God to water and to bring forth the fruit. Fruit does not come by manipulation. It comes by trust in the one who is faithful. Sometimes we see that fruit in this life, sometimes we don't. But the hard-working farmer keeps his hand to the plow. Just a few weeks ago, I met a man by the name of Ashraf, Ashraf was an arms dealer and smuggler in Yemen. And if you know anything about Yemen, it is to this day one of the hardest countries 
in the world in terms of Muslim mindset and oppression. And it is in this context as a Muslim young man that he got himself involved in those things in order to put food on his table. He also ended up in prison. And to be in a Yemeni prison is to be assured of all sorts of pain and suffering inflicted upon you. He was so badly beaten in prison that one of his family members paid a bribe to the prison to allow him to be released temporarily to a medical facility that was run by an Anglican mission. And when he was in this hospital, he met this doctor by the name of Tia. Tia was a Dutch physician who was serving in this Anglican hospital to meet the needs of the Yemeni people, and she met Ashraf and began caring for him. And as he told the story, he said, I first thought this woman is an angel. No one has ever been so kind to me. Well, over the course of several weeks, he saw her multiple times as he was released from the hospital to care for his medical conditions from the abuse in the prison. Over the course of that time, they began to dialogue. And at one particular meeting, she took the courageous step of giving him a Bible in Arabic. He took it. Why? Well, he wanted to show himself a tough guy. He wanted to tell his friends, hey, I know I got thrown in prison for smuggling arms. Well, I want to show the government of Yemen I'm not afraid to take this illegal Bible. So that's why he took it. Well, his family, knowing that he still was in great problem in this prison, paid yet another substantial bribe to get him released from prison. And very soon thereafter, it was found out that he was meeting with Tia even after he had been in prison. The government found him out, found her out, immediately kicked her out of the country and kicked him out of the country. That was 26 years ago. They did not speak after that separation. Ashraf ended up in Egypt where he met a young woman A story in and of itself, he marries her, cannot stay in Egypt because she is of Coptic origins and Egyptian Christians don't marry Muslims. (laughs) But over the course of that time, as they were courting, he began to read this Arabic Bible and he met Jesus Christ. They were married, thought they were going to Australia. They stopped in Cyprus where they have been now for the last two decades He found out about a ministry in Cyprus that was doing radio into Yemen. His education was actually in film and radio. So he said, hey, could I help? And so for now nearly 20 years, he has been working in this ministry in Cyprus, but now has added added television. He has a mark on his head. He is a wanted man in Yemen and around the world because he is publicly proclaiming Christ by radio and television and social media into Yemen. And many, many people today have come to faith in Christ through this ministry. 
About 10 years ago, while he was in his office, his phone rang. There was a woman on the other end of the phone, and as he was speaking with her, she said, I'm very interested in the gospel outreach in Yemen. Can you tell me about it? She spoke a little bit longer, and he said, is your name Tia? She said, how did you know? He said, my name is Ashraf. Do you remember me? One of the sad features of this story is that when Tia was kicked out and sent back to her homeland, her church asked her, how many converts to Christ did you have in your missions work in Yemen? She said, I don't know of any. You mean to tell me you wasted your life? All those years in that God-forsaken place and you don't have one convert? She says, no, I know of none. When God's providence, Ashraf and Tia were reconnected, he invited her to his office. She told him that story. He said, come here a second. And on a bulletin board on his wall, he had photos after photos after photos of converts to Christ through his ministry that is the fruit of hers. He got to see These people come to Christ through her ministry and she knew nothing about it. Sometimes we see the fruit, sometimes we don't. But Timothy, (laughs) be strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Paul is telling Timothy these moorings for ministry are critical to his vitality. You must be connected to the very grace of God in Christ Timothy. That tethering is critical to your fruitfulness. Verses eight and nine, not only is Timothy to be tethered in this way to the grace of God in Christ, Paul says something more in verses eight and nine. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains, as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. I'll come back to verse seven in just a minute. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, as you're strengthened in the grace of the gospel, strengthened in the grace that is found exclusively in Jesus Christ, do not forget that your message is based upon the historical work of God in Christ. Do do not miss this, folks. For the Apostle Paul, for all of the New Testament, as promised according to the old, we are not given a philosophy of life. We are not given some sort of religious order. We are given Jesus. His person, his work that is explained to us. God has not in his word just given us a, a design of how to live a better life. He himself delivered us from our sins. Paul describes this in shorthand here. Remember, Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, offspring of David. That is shorthand for Jesus is the fulfillment that is all that was promised in the Old Testament. It is this Jesus. It's the Jesus of which Paul speaks in Romans 1, 3 and 4, born of the seed of of David, but raised Son of God in power according to the Spirit of Holiness. It is this Jesus, Timothy, 
that you must remember. For you to be faithful in ministry, you are to be tethered to the grace of God in Christ, but also to the work of God in Christ. Fruitful ministry is not grounded in how good we are, but in how good God is. Fruitful ministry is not grounded in what we do, but what he has done. Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel. Paul is not telling Timothy, and this will become clear in verses 10 through 13, he's not telling Timothy that your ministry doesn't matter. To the contrary, it has eternal ramifications. But only a ministry that is tethered to the grace of Christ and to the work of Christ is a ministry that will bear the fruit of Christ. That's what he is saying to Timothy. Paul gives a quite poignant image here, doesn't he? He's chained in a Roman jail, chained to a Roman centurion. And as he is chained to that Roman guard, he sees what only God could enable him to see. Think about that. Ministry is filled with suffering. God, why did you allow this? Why do I have this suffering? How can I possibly minister in a jail chained to a Roman centurion? How is the gospel going to flourish in this way, God? What are you doing? And Paul is reminded that while he's chained to a centurion, the word of God is not ever chained. God will do what he has purposed. His word will bring forth fruits because it is his word. Timothy, you are to be tethered to the grace of God in Christ. You are to be tethered to the work of God in Christ that is exposed to us, expressed for us in the pages of Holy Scripture. Look back at verse 7 now. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Paul says, Timothy, tie yourself here. Meditate. Marvel. And then minister. (laughs) You see... Gospel ministry should be the overflow of the grace of God, of his work in us. Paul makes this very, very personal to Timothy. Timothy, you be strengthened in the grace that is found in Christ Jesus. Timothy, you remember Christ Raised from the dead, the offspring of David, as I preached in my gospel. Well, sometimes we think of the doctrine of election as some sort of pious, reformed platitude. Not for Paul. Look at verses 10 through 13. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. 
For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. What Paul is doing here in verses 10 through 13 is really stunning, actually. He is grounding his hope in the fruitfulness of his labors in the elective purposes of God. Don't miss that. What gives Paul confidence in the value of his work is that he is being strengthened in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is tied himself to the reality, the historical truth of the life, death, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus Christ. And he is tethered as well to the purpose of God in Christ. Paul knows that he is on a mission that cannot fail. Even while he's chained to a Roman centurion. Remember how we started this evening? All who are in Asia have turned away from me. (laughs) But God's elective purpose will be realized. The purpose of God for salvation of his people in Christ Jesus is one that is described in verse 10 as with eternal glory. That notion of glory, especially in its Old Testament uh, manifestation, is an expression of the weightiness of God, whereby God's weight is accomplished in his purposes. He cannot not do what he says he's going to do. His election is sure. The promises of God cannot fail. The purposes of God cannot fail. The word of God cannot fail. Timothy The moorings for ministry are that you are tethered to the grace of God in Christ. You are tethered to the work of God in Christ, and you are tethered to the purpose of God in Christ. In one very important sense, the ministry of the minister really matters. The minister is an instrument in the hand of Almighty God to proclaim the truth of God to the people of God, whereby he draws his people to himself. Does faithful ministry matter? You better believe it does. But Paul reminds us here that there are some ministers that will even abandon the faith. And on that last day, Jesus will deny them. (laughs) Serious stakes. But in it all, the elective purposes of God are realized. For he will remain faithful. He cannot deny himself. How is... Timothy, to be strengthened in the grace of the gospel, it is by the means of him obeying his commander-in-chief, delighting in the will of the Lord Jesus Christ, and believing the purposes of God in Christ Jesus. The calling of ministry is a sober one. It is one that comes with gravitas, Yes, the faithfulness of the minister matters. But even where the minister is faithless, God 
remains faithful. Even the denial of the one who abandons the faith does not thwart the elective purposes of God. Paul, as we draw all this to a close, is saying to Timothy, Timothy, ministry is not about you. (laughs) It's about Christ. Timothy, don't look for props for your ministry from resources that you perceive from within. Timothy, look to Christ. Be strengthened in his grace. Remember his resurrection from the dead. And remember the elective purposes of God will not fail. In the early 20th century, Gerhardus Voss, as he was speaking to a group of aspiring ministers, frames the nature of gospel ministry in a way that I think is valuable for us to recognize as we close. He looks at this group of young men and says, yes, you are messengers of Christ, ministers of the gospel who herald the word of Christ and manifest the love of Christ. And when you are, you become a channel, Voss says, through which supernatural currents flow. Think about that. When you are a minister of the gospel, preaching the word of God from this pulpit, you become a channel through which the supernatural currents flow. Moreover, Voss will say that the servant of the Lord is, as it were, made part, as he put it, of the wonder world of salvation. Think about this. When God's people gather and the word is preached and the Spirit uses that word and the instrumentality of a simple servant of God who is strengthened in the grace of Christ who relies on the work of Christ, who trusts in the purposes of Christ. When he speaks the word of God faithfully, he becomes part of the wonder world of the application of the grace of God to the people of God until the Jesus of the gospel returns. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Oh God, as we think about the way in which gospel ministry in the 21st century is organically woven into the tapestry of your purposes, whereby your will is that you will call people to yourself from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Oh God, I pray on this somber event as we think about the gravitas of grace, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ as the risen an exalted Son of God, that you will work in and through Juan Carlos to be a faithful messenger of the gospel of Jesus Christ, one who is strengthened in the grace of Christ, one who relies upon the work of Christ, and one who wholly trusts in the purposes of our God in Christ until Jesus returns. All God's people said, Amen.